0: A reading from the book of Moses, Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21, in the New American Standard Bible. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba, When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, and about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from the heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 86, verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 17 in the New American Standard Bible. I am... Incline, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord are good, and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours." All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you Lord, have helped me and comforted me. A reading from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 20, verses 7 through 13 in the New American Standard Bible. O oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. And I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side, denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived, so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 69, verses 7 through 18 in the ESV. Make, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. Uh, this is the same verse. <laughs> okay. Sorry. There we go. My bad. All right. A reading from the book of Psalms. Psalms 69, 7 through 18 in the ESV. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly, O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 in the ESV. What shall we say then? A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24 through 39 in the New American Standard Bible. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will, not be made no, that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather... Fear him who is able to destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And not, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, So the first thing I'm going to just explain a couple things uh, before anybody says it. Uh, There's a reason why I didn't print out scripture sheets and pass them to you, and I'm going to explain that first. So, Uh, Everyone does have an outline, um, but uh, unless I get overruled, which is very likely and happens often, um, what I think happens sometimes when we try very hard to equip people and not give anybody any excuse to not be following along or, you know, we do things like uh, we have five different Bible reading plans that we pass out every year. We have articles, we have books, we have all these things to equip you and so that you can't say, well, I didn't know, I'd, I don't even own a Bible or uh, whatever. Bibles here, you can take one if you don't have one, I think. I think that's true. Uh, so, um, the first point is of why I'm not passing out scripture sheets is... Um, Because if you, with all, whoever's able-bodied and everything to get here on time, on time would be like 6.45, and you'll have an outline with all the scripture sheets listed here, right? This is all the scriptures that we read. And so how children learn in the early phases of life is, um, in a very practical way, they open up a Bible, and once they learn how to read, they say, oh, there's Job and Judges and Numbers, and they sit in the pews. You know, and maybe they're listening to the sermon, maybe they're not. And, but, you know, they start to get a feel for the Bible of not just by looking at the table of contents and looking it up. Um, but you can arrive here 15 minutes early, or if you get here, there's legitimate p- reasons why people can be late and whatever, and that's okay. And we have grace for that. Um, but you could look at them. You could find them. You could read along, and you could, you know, more readily know and open up exactly where these scriptures are. And you can bring your own Bible because we have many here, but uh, you can also bring your own. Uh, So that's point one as to why I'm not passing out scripture sheets. Uh, Point number two is in uh, God's providence, He did know that, and sovereignty, He did know that the printing press was going to be invented, and that by what would be the 18th century or the 16th century, somewhere in between, would have been the when was the printing press invented? I'm not a historian. 14th, 15th century, um, that we would have started a process worldwide that the scriptures would be made available for everybody. Um, but there was roughly 1,500 years where that wasn't the case. And the scriptures, all the way from when the books of Moses were written, were even in the when you read, it says, read this aloud to the people. Read these commandments aloud to the people. They were gathered. And they didn't say, all right, open up your tablets and your phones to get out your blue letter Bible app or whatever. They were supposed to pay attention, be mentally aware. Um, I like to do this when I'm reading scripture and it's even, sometimes it's easier when you're listening is to close your eyes and like when it's talking about, you know, the, the enmity between uh, Sarah and Hagar and Hagar's out in the field and it's a bow shot away so you can start to imagine in your head, like, what is that like? 50 yards, 75 yards, and she's, you know, watching her son uh, starve to death and under the, the plight of the sun, and you can imagine these things. And I think that's what a lot of people did, and um, that's a good discipline to have, is, is a holy imagination to, as the scriptures are read, being able to pay attention, mentally follow along, and not start thinking about, like, man... We're here on Wednesday. Is there going to be food afterwards? If so, did anybody make coffee? I wonder if I can sneak out and grab some coffee. You know, whatever. It is, a, it is a discipline to stay mentally aware and follow the scriptures. And you've got to do that anyways when you're reading along. Hopefully, you know, if we had them on the board or the projector or whatever, um, or if you're reading along in your Bible, that's fine. Um, but hopefully you're mentally aware and paying attention and following the storyline. And you can already in before even looking at the outline, you can start to say, how are these connected? Why were these scriptures chosen? How do they correlate? Uh, and as we get into some hermeneutic principles, um, how do these point towards Christ? How do these apply to the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the resurrection, coronation, ascension, sending of the spirit, whatever. Uh, you can start to mentally put those together. And I think everybody here is capable of that. So... Um, Unless I get overruled, I don't plan on doing the scripture sheets. I'll probably explain that for a few weeks going forward, just so everyone's aware. Uh, It wasn't done by accident or unpreparedness. I think it would be a good... We could even, you know, uh, it's a possibility going forward to have them available if people want them and whatever, but you also have Bibles. So um, we are going to have a hard stop in 20 minutes at 7.40. So let's get into this what I'm going to try to do is you have the outlines here I'm going to try to hit a lot of the major points and point out some things in every section of scripture Um, and then kind of uh, recapitulate some of the main themes that I have down there at the bottom as how these scriptures fit together and then real quick I didn't uh, I don't actually know this do we grab these scriptures from a lectionary lexicon lectionary The the Vanderbilt one Okay, so it'd be like vanderbilt.edu, and you can follow, or you can just Google it, and there's, uh, and we didn't use all the scriptures. We're not using all the scriptures listed. We're just taking some of them. We
0: are using
1: all of them. Okay, so we're using all of them, and we might be adding to them a little bit or uh, making them a little bit broader context. So you can always look ahead. So these will be the scriptures that we read on this coming Sunday. So, uh, you can open up your Bibles to Genesis 21, 8 through 21 and follow along um, if you would like. So I'm going to point out some things here uh, just in, in differences and to make some comments. This is going to be more like uh, a homily and maybe multiple homilies, very, very condensed. So first thing to note is in that in verse 9, um, I'm sorry, starting in verse 10, when it's talking about, therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid that's the NASB, but a more literal translation is, and because that formulates how you think about Hagar, that she was just a maid doing dishes and how we think in, in modern terms. But whenever you see that here in the NASB, a more accurate translation would be slave woman, that she was uh, a, not just a hired servant. She was uh, more like what we would think of, of an, an indentured woman or there's, there's no way she's getting out of this. She's kind of captured in a way. Right? So when you see that, uh, know that that's a more literal translation. Um, So these are, uh, if you're following the storyline from Genesis, there starts, you know, in in God's province, there's enmity between Abraham and Lot. Uh, There's, you know, enmity between various people. Well, Abraham has a lot of people against him for various reasons if you follow the storyline. But you know, in here we see that it's it's Ishmael, it's the son of Hagar, who begins to start mocking and deriding, and it's and it's uh, you know that mocking is isn't just a oh look at him he's got funny ears and things, but it's it's a um, you know it's a, it's a putting down. It's a more than condescending. It's very verbally abusive, if you will, and starts to do that towards towards Isaac. And Sarah, you know, God hears out her, her plea in, uh, in this case of, you know, because God tells Abraham to obey what she's saying is to drive out the slave woman and her son because the promise was always for Isaac and it was their own self-righteousness. It was their own going ahead of God's plan, uh, not relying on his promises that got him into that mess in the first place. Right? Hagar was never really an option. There was never uh an intended purpose that uh was supposed to be um sought after that was not done in faith, right? So uh one of the things that if you guys know about other worldviews and and major religions, this is a huge section of scripture where there's a lot of contention between Christians and Muslims. All right, does anybody know why? Right the Muslims would follow the line of Ishmael saying he was the he was the chosen son. he's from him come the people of God because that's where they derive their nationality from. Um, you can trek through the uh descendants of Ishmael that became into those um eastern regions, which eventually became several several uh hundreds would be maybe about a thousand years down the line became, it would have been about 1500 years down the line from here, uh, would have became the, the Islamic nations, right? So they would say and have, you know, they use the same verses to point out that uh, Ishmael is a chosen son, he's going to become this great nation. But we see a clear line of through, it's very clear through the scriptures, there's no contention that that Isaac is the chosen son. We follow him through the rest of the scriptures and that God clearly has his promise through Isaac, right? And so one of the things we have to account for is why did God show grace and mercy to Ishmael? I don't think it's explicitly drawn out here in these verses, um, and I think there's a few possibilities. So uh, one, as we're going to see in uh, how the rest of these scriptures correlate, is God loves to hear and honors and wants to show mercy. He is a God full of mercy and grace. All these rest of these scriptures, one of the main themes that we'll look at, if we have enough time, is that God hears the plea of people. And I actually, even though you got to take, it's not a dualistic way of thinking, it's of taking two things that are seemingly opposite in scripture, where like in Isaiah fifty nine, two, it says, Because of your sin you are separated from God, and he does not hear your prayer. And saying he is unwilling to hear prayer, it's not that he's unable to or he's deaf, but that he's not willing to hear prayer because of sin and because of the separation you have between God. But in the same way, God hears loves to answer prayer. And now we don't um Follow Ishmael through the rest of the scriptures. Obviously, there's nations built from him and they're ungodly nations. But you also have to wrestle with uh, Jude. I think it's Jude um, or James. It's a J in the epistles in the New Testament. That's not John. Says that Righteous was, or I'm sorry, that Righteous, that Lot was a righteous man. Even though after he left uh, Sodom, he got drunk and slept with both of his daughters, and those started to. Of, of the nations that were against God's people and persecuted them and set up all sorts of pagan idols that sacrificed their own children and had sex cults and all kinds of crazy things. And at least I would say uh, that the scriptures are right in saying that, that Lot acted righteously while he was in Sodom. And obviously, not everything he, it doesn't say that everything he did was righteous. Right? It's not saying that everything he did all the time was righteous. That's very clear. But that he was still an elect person of God um, who fell into some very egregious sin, but God still heard his pleas. And I think that's possible also with Ishmael. So not to derive from that any longer, but God loves to show mercy. He loves to hear our, our prayers. He loves when people cry out to him. Right, That's the first point. Uh, of Of why God would would show mercy on Ishmael and Hagar um, also because he 's abraham's son, and because God clearly has his covenant with Abraham and his descendants now specifically through Isaac right is where the blessing is, and that 's where we follow in scripture but uh, but the scripture says starting in genesis twelve that that through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Every single nation on earth, right? And his descendants will be more numerable than the sand on the sea and and the stars in the heavens. So uh, just because he's Isaac's, I'm sorry, just because he's Abraham's son, I think God loves to show mercy. Um, Sarah was clearly acting in in unbelief, not believing in God's promises and and asking uh, them to be cast out. And the third reason God shows mercy on Isaac is because, as we see in in some of these later verses, is that through all nations, God is going to call his people and he's allowing splits and and factions to happen so that there'll be nations of different ethnicities and races and languages and worldviews and thought processes and, economic systems of all kinds of sorts, that God's raising the, up these nations all over the earth so that he could choose his people out of them. God's raising up allowed uh, the Muslim nations to be raised up so that God can call Muslims to Christ. Same thing with Hindus and, and Buddhists and, and, and Roman Catholics. <laughs> or any worldview, right? With uh, and evangelical Christians and lukewarm Christians. So, um, so that's for Genesis. Psalm eighty-six. Um, look at verse nine. Let's look at verse nine, which says, "All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before the Lord, before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name." So, as you see there at the notes, this started at Pentecost. This started when all nations were gathered there. In, in Jerusalem to worship at Pentecost and uh, received the promise of the Father and got baptized in the Spirit. And, and from there, from those 17 nations that were gathered or represented, God was making and starting a process of his glory going out to all nations, to every inch of the earth, right? Um, a lot of times in, in modern times and in, in dispensationalist, uh, more interpretations and and mindsets, we tend to think that this is going to happen at the second coming of Christ when, you know, even when we read in in Philippians that, you know, every tongue will confess that you are Lord and every knee will bow. We tend to have this eschatological way of thinking that that'll happen later and Jesus is going to have to come back. And that's just never, uh, that's, there's no, that you have to read that into the scriptures, That's not what you could pull out, right? It doesn't say all nations whom you have made shall come and worship you, worship before you uh, when you make them do it at the final judgment seat, when you finally come back and set up your kingdom in any day now, right? It doesn't say that. It's always pointing towards step by step, inch by inch, the glory of the Lord, the kingdom is expanding, and all nations are starting to be infiltrated with God's glory, And uh, people from all ethnicities and races and and nations are coming to to Christ as the gospel is proclaimed. uh, Which we're going to look at a little bit more here in Jeremiah. But Romans 10.18, and you guys can cross-reference that on your own. uh, Romans 10.18 and Colossians 1.23, especially Colossians. uh, Well, even in Romans 10, it's saying, Romans 10.18 is quoting from, I think, uh, well, it's one of the major prophets. I think it's... Uh, it 's not Jeremiah. It might be Ezekiel. but either way, it's already quoting from the Old Testament when he 's writing Romans that the gospel is going out to all nations, that the glory of God is being proclaimed in all nations, and it has already been done. And Paul makes that claim there in the first century, right And in a very real way that 's true. So um, if you look at my second to last note for you know quoting in psalm eighty six For you are good and ready to forgive all those who call upon you. Those who hate you may see it and be ashamed. So one of the things this psalm brings out, and I love what I love about looking at these Christocentrically. uh, We can talk later in the fellowship hall about a hermeneutic called whether the scriptures are Christocentric or Christotelic, and Sam can tell you the answer right now. The answer is yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. Yes. but one of the things I love just to put this in here and to think about is that even those like who hate the Lord would will actually are going to be glorifying God in real ways in real practical ways uh, if you know anything about classical music and I'm not claiming to know a lot, but I do love uh, Handel's Messiah, which I looked up was written in seventeen forty one and two hundred and seventy years later it's still a height of uh of the advent season of proclaiming. And there's, when uh, they always have it downtown and the Dayton Philharmonic Philharmonic does it every year and it's done all over the world, is this musical piece that was written 279 years ago and pagans are gathering to listen to it and sing it. And they all rise at one point. They're not all Christians. (laughs) Maybe some of them are. I guarantee not everyone is, right? When they sing the hallelujah chorus, everyone rises out of honor, and sometimes it's out of you know just out of tradition, but pagans are rising <laughs> to give glory to God, to honor him. And they might not even know it so which leads us to Jeremiah 20 verses seven through thirteen. Um, just to quickly look at that, because of the word of the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, uh, that has resulted in reproach against Jeremiah. And says, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire. He's saying like, I can't, this, sounds, this should sound familiar. Somewhere in Acts 4, I think it's verse 20. It talks about, you know, when they're told to no longer preach Christ. It says, I don't know whether it's honorable to, to obey men or to honor God, but I must keep on, we're going to keep on proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, that he's the Messiah, right? So when you look at things Christocentrically or Christotelically, uh, Jeremiah is his whole life was a foreshadowing of Christ of the reproach that they're having against Jeremiah or against God that they intend because they're haters of God are being transferred into what the visible manifest at that time prophet and representation of God is who is Jeremiah because it wasn't enough to shake, just shake their fist at God they had to take it out on God's representative people Right? He's he's proclaiming destruction. He's saying repent. Right? It's the time is for repentance if you read it in context. Right? And I hope that's how that's what we should be praying for and what's what we'd we'll be seeking is I hope that is everyone's heart and passion of uh I can't help but proclaim what God's doing. I can't help but talk about the word of the Lord. I can't like I just read, you know, uh Psalm two yesterday and I can't like did you guys know? Like, did you have you guys read that? That's amazing, right? That's what our, our speech should be about. It should be a burning desire in us. And if it's not, we should cry out to the Lord for mercy. Repent. Be filled with the scriptures, right? Um, one of my favorite verses here, uh, 20, I think it's 11. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. This isn't a um, prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean God's going to... Uh, you know, go before me and defeat every enemy in the way that I want. Right? It didn't work out that great for Jeremiah in his life. It didn't work out that that great for our Lord in the ways we think. Like that, he was honored by all men, and uh, he was risen to a seat of honor. And everyone said, "Yeah, this guy. We'll just let him rule. He's the king. He's the Messiah." Right? They killed him. That was the that was the reproach that they. Hate it, and so when it says uh, that the Lord is with me, like a dread champion, has anybody seen the movie Troy? It's an older, it's an older one, uh, but they bring out just like in the you know account with uh, David and Goliath, there was one champion on one side who was mocking, and uh, instead of having hundreds or thousands of people die in battle, let's just have the biggest, baddest, toughest, best warrior from this side fight, and let's just have. The dread champion, the biggest baddest toughest warrior from here fight. Uh, so we don't need to go into the example of Troy because probably most of you haven't seen it. Uh, you probably shouldn't watch it, and uh, you could just read the story of David and Goliath. So, but that's what he's talking about when he's like a dread champion. He's he's gonna win. He's the biggest baddest warrior, and those who call upon his name, he's with them like a dread champion. But it's not a prosperity gospel type of dread champion where he's just going to do our bidding, right? He's not just going to give us everything we want. He's not our bodyguard that he sits on the side and when I want him to come up then he'll fight, right? Does that make sense? So uh, you know, the God who tests the righteous, it later says in this Jeremiah passage. uh, So when he says that It's obviously not, you can read, you know, in context, it's obviously not so that God will discover what's in your heart. Because he says, the very next... Where is it? Uh, In the very next um, passage, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, right? Right? He doesn't test to find out your heart. He doesn't test so that God, God, doesn't test the righteous. It's not a test to see if you'll pass. And so he'll know who's good and who's doing his will and who's not. He's testing for, I believe are our, our two reasons. Number one, so that you'll know your heart, right? When reproach comes against you because of the word of the Lord, do we shy away? Do we get defensive? Do we get uh, angry do we have we well, even not because of the word of the lord that would be ideal for righteous christians and who have been uh redeemed that's what we're working towards but um it's not so god will find out it's so we'll find out oftentimes i think we fail and miss the point <laughs> we go through these uh these testings of the lord and we fail so that he would hopefully open up our eyes and then we want to stay blind to that fact, right? Um, so it's not so God will find out. He wants to show us how we can improve in, in character, our heart motivations, so we'll see the depths of what's inside our heart. Uh, and then the second reason, I think primary reason, is to refine us, right? Just like I think it's Psalm 12 talks in metaphors of the word of the Lord is like a refining fire, refined in silver seven times, it's to refine us. It's to remove the dross, the impurities. We would have to have our eyes opened to what dross looks like and what silver looks like or what gold looks like and be able to separate those, which again is through the word of the Lord. But I think that's God's purpose in, in taking us through through trials, through tests, right? So the last part of the Old Testament in negative one minutes um, Zeal for your house, quoted, that's also quoted in John 2, uh, Jesus' first cleansing, right? This is clearly a Christocentric psalm. The whole psalm is about Christ and an example of, this is through David, I believe, and pointing forward to how Christ is crying out to the Father continually and relying on him. Um, And again, here's the people of God who are, the person of God in this psalm who are, reviled against and have enmity with God, but want to take it on the person. All right, right. Romans 6, 1 through 11. Um, In that first part, let me pull it up. Uh, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, right? This is coming right off the the, the argument that we have been justified by one man and are no longer um, going to have the judgment of sin against us yet we are still culpable for sin. That's important. I love, Romans is my favorite epistle because of uh, the Socratic approach where every chapter builds and its argument, on top of argument, on top of argument. And so, um, um, just know the argument he's making here is that although we are justified before God, those who, uh, just like all the, readings here, who are crying out to God in faith, which is an inward action, we outwardly still have to live out that faith, right? And put to death sin. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ, right? Yet we are in every way still culpable for sin, which is why we have to crucify it. So lastly, Matthew 10, 24 through 30, uh, I promise I will get better at doing this in a more concise way. But you guys can read. Um, we'll kind of end on a couple notes here from Matthew, but then you guys can kind of read the main themes and reread these scriptures throughout the week and kind of think on those main themes and points of discussion, and we can talk about it in the Fellowship Hall afterwards. Um, but that first verse, uh, Matthew ten twenty four, 24, Disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Right? I think in the West we especially... I think these are uh, everything that's going on in our culture are pointing towards culturally we've been steeped in a culture that has a problem with authority. Um, and it's inescapable. You cannot escape authority. You cannot be autonomous. There is no such thing as an autonomous zone. That is uh, read Rush uh Revolt Against Maturity. It's all about how We revolt and want to be autonomous. And he draws it out in dozens of practical ways. And that was written back, I believe, in the late 70s, early 80s, about how societal, how in our culture in the West, in America, uh, he's just bringing out practical ways of how we revolt against God's authority and how we continue our biggest problem is we want to be autonomous from God. That's everything, which means I want to be autonomous from my boss and my pastor and my mom which sometimes we might say, well, I won't go there, but, and we want to be autonomous from the cops and we want to be autonomous from every realm of authority. And the same thing, the same principles apply is with spiritual authority is it's not because we, it's not because I don't need a cop giving me a ticket or (laughs) it's because I just don't like it. It's because I've got a problem with God and his authority and whether that's A wicked authority and it's unjust or whether it's righteous doesn't play a whole lot into how i'm supposed to respond obviously we don't do unrighteous things and we don't follow certain unrighteous laws if you know we're called to kill people or reveal the jews and whatever but we're still called to submit to authority in every realm so um think on those things so it's quarter till i only went five minutes over that was pretty good uh, who's going to lead us in worship? I think it's Sam, Christiana. John, are you playing? Okay. Um, let's cl- close in prayer. Call on eight in worship, and you guys can read those main themes, and we can talk about them later. Uh, Lord, we pray that your word would uh, fill our hearts and our minds, that we would be convicted by your word, that your Holy Spirit would come on us Uh, and fill us as we understand your word, as we read your word, as we come to worship. Let us um, become alive to Christ. Let our mortal bodies, Lord, become more alive as we worship you. For you're a great name. Amen.